Hello, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And uh, we got a, a bunch of emails, Connor. I'm going to start with one here from a, a, new, a new listener. I love those. Those, it, no offense to the old listeners, we, we love you a lot, but it's exciting <laughs> getting a new listener yeah. or an email from a new listener. We got Chris here. He says, I started listening to your program when an astronomy program that was being broadcast in the same, same time slot went to podcast only and was dropped. At first, I didn't care much for it. Referring to us. For us. Yeah. Well. That's a tough start, Chris. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes you need to take you know, a little taste of something first before you decide I, I... But it has grown on me considerably. <laughs> yes. Yeah? The latest episode presented data from a study that indicated life satisfaction while improving marginally remains fairly consistent from youth into old age. Your suggestion that your... I think this was your suggestion... My, or my, my, what I took away from it, yeah. <laughs> that your 30s were a difficult period doesn't really take into account that this is your present perspective. Mm-hmm. If the 30-year-old you had been asked, how's your life, would your response be, it's okay? I think this is what the data from the study is concluding, just a thought. Uh, that, that was my biggest surprise, really, with the data. First of all, that uh, the, <laughs> age gra- the young uh, teenagers are relatively unhappy compared to the rest of us. But the bigger takeaway for me was that. Let me, let me end with, with how Chris ends his email because it gives me a lot of life satisfaction. He says, I really have been enjoying listening to your show. Keep up the good work, you guys. Thank you, Chris. We will try. Great to have you. Great to have you with us. Another email from Elias. Hey, Connor and Gabe. I do not have a tattoo. This was in connection with a recent study on uh, how incarceration rates go up. If you have tattoos. And being arrested and being convicted. Correct. Yeah, it all, all goes up. All across Whether the you're board. male or female, more if you're male, but so. I do not have a tattoo. I've never imagined anything I'd want on my body for the rest of my life. Until recently. My cousin, who lives in Berlin, recently posted a photo of her most recent tattoo, an olive branch adorned with small olives and leaves. Monochrome, not color. It spoke to me on many levels, the olive for my Middle Eastern roots and also the olive branch, which I see as a call for peace, especially today. I don't know where I would get such a tattoo, however. I have fairly hairy appendages, and I don't know how it would look with hairs sprouting through. I'm not a criminal. I've never been arrested. (laughs) Elias. I just love where it twisted off to, but I, I agree. That sounds like a beautiful tattoo. Yeah. We got another one on tattoos. I'm not going to even say the name of the person who wrote this, even though I, I, I love her and her art. Oh, so, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Long-time she, listener. She writes, on tattoos, I don't have one. I've always felt that if the world turns completely upside down, a tattoo would make me overly identifiable. Mm-hmm. I am law-abiding, but if the wrong political forces take power, I want to hide. Wow. So she's writing from the United States, by the way. Right. And That's it, harrowing. That- <clears throat> Well, we, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, a look at a, a possibly dystopic future and connects to what we said on the show, which is that that has to factor into it. If you have a tattoo, you are more identifiable. Hence, if there's security camera footage of a crime committed, yeah. they can connect it back to you. That was the one caveat of the study that it didn't have any information about where the tattoos were and whether they were visible with regards to its connection to incarceration rates, arrest rates and conviction rates. Yeah. But still. Yeah, if you have a tiny little smiley face down on the underside of your foot, I don't think... That shouldn't affect whether you're arrested or not. (laughs) Last email here from Patricia. I have just one tattoo on my left arm of my son, who died in 2015. I got it when I was 64. It's a version of a graffiti image on a garage door in our lane. 
It is a talisman that I touch to soothe the ache that I will always have over his loss. Patricia, really, really sorry to read that. And a reminder that tattoos do a lot of things, I guess, for for people. I don't know. Is that the right thing to say? Even it's a reminder that? I don't know. I don't think it's really a reminder that. I know that that email moved me, Patricia, and thank you for sending. Yeah. Um, we'll go from there to some science. Gabe, you had something some news? to start. Yeah, some science news. Yeah, we're going to do a couple of shorties here. We've, we, don't, we normally don't do this. I'm going to read off a bit of science news. This is Science okay. Unscripted. This show is called Science Unscripted. Is it? And it's going to go into the a more scripted uh, <laughs> direction here. Okay. What do you want? I'm going to do smartphone addiction or uh, artificial intelligence being better at weather prediction. Smartphones. Yeah. One third of the human population might be at high risk for smartphone addiction, according to a study the largest of its kind, that was published this week in the International Journal of Mental Health and Addiction. Researchers from the University of Toronto, but also McGill and Harvard universities, compiled data from 50,000 people in 195 countries based on the smartphone addiction scale. It's a survey that comprises 10 statements like, I have my phone on my mind when I'm not using it. I constantly check my phone so as not to miss conversations on social media. I feel pain in my wrists or at the back of my neck when using my phone. Oh, no. (laughs) Participants were asked to rate how strongly they agree or disagree with those statements. Interestingly, across the 41 countries that had at least 100 responses, women were far more likely to report problematic smartphone use. Also, younger participants reported more addiction issues arising from their phone And across the globe, the most problematic use was reported in Southeast Asia. The least problematic was in Europe. Really? Mm -hmm. So the main takeaway is there, a third of the world addicted to their phone. And more women than men. And Southeast Asia is number one. Europe's doing doing the best. Germans are pretty good. German adults are pretty good about keeping that smartphone away Mm -hmm. uh, compared to... My wife chastises me, and, and my daughter's sitting here in the studio, by the way, and she, she can probably attest that when I have my phone out, I get chastised. Do they say the word fub? Because my kids, I taught them the word fub to ignore someone and, and pay attention to your phone instead, and so they call me out. They know the word fub, right? You're fubbing me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start off with some uh, surprising scientific news, I I guess for me, probably for a lot of people out there. And it's connected, Gabe. I'm going to slide a graph over to you. This graph, I've spent, I I spend too much time on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Mm -hmm. And this graph keeps popping up. It's from Copernicus satellites. Ocean temperatures? Yeah. Uh, In general, it shows the temperatures or the the, the fluctuating temperature of the oceans, the world's oceans. Um, 2023 is an enormous anomaly. I've never seen environmental scientists reacting as strongly to anything as I have this year, uh, seeing them kind of live post their reactions to this data coming in. The oceans, ocean water surface temperatures are much higher than they've ever been. And looking at the data data here, the graph, it's not very close. So what's going on? What is this? That's really, that's scary. This is an uh uh-oh moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Like a lot of things that need to be uh, examined scientifically, the answer is complex. We're in the middle of an El Nino year, which changes surface temperatures. There's a lack of Sahara dust that can block some sunlight. So if it's not there, then you got more sunlight. And there's also this underwater volcanic eruption close to Tonga that is affecting things. So a lot of things are mixed into it. 
also, and this is the unexpected or kind of contradictory thing mixed into this, is the fact that there's less pollution. Less pollution leading to warmer sea temperatures. How less pollution? The yes, good thing. Yeah. How? <laughs> how could that possibly be? The answer is that as of 2020, there's been a rule in place that ships. They used to be able to pump out with all that exhaust when they're shipping things across the oceans. Up to 3.5 percent of that could have been sulfur. Cruise liners, sulfur dioxide, any, any big ship, and they re- reduced it down to 0.5 percent. What's interesting about that is these ships, largely because of that sulfur, used to leave kind of like you know air, airplane contrails. Yeah, those white lines of clouds high in the sky. Sure, they used to leave those, and now they're not doing that as much anymore. And so it's a and sw- those clouds were blocking sunlight, bringing the global temperature down. There was enough sulfur from these ships. In the atmosphere to bring the temperature down? It's a, it's a small part of the equation, but an interesting one. So I, one of the numbers I saw, and this is, a, this is a, a best guess, is that it's something like 0.005 degrees difference. Or it's part of this equation, but it's not, it's not the whole story. It mm-hmm. would be wrong to say that because this has been changed with ships, that's why ocean temperatures are higher. That is not the case, but it is part of it. And What is the conclusion then? Let those ships spew that sulfur back up into the atmosphere and then we're, we're all good again? Or? Nobody's saying that. Um, <laughs> and the conclusion is mostly that when we think about taking pollution out of the air, that's obviously a good thing. We want to do that. We want cleaner air. But one of the unexpected consequences of that could be rising temperatures because that pollution that we created used to block sunlight. Hmm. And now we're letting that sunlight block in. Um, sulfur or sulfur dioxide, the, the gaseous form, is known. It's very good at blocking sunlight. Yeah. This is what happened after the asteroid that, or the, the comet that hit. That How hit harmful it. is it? Yeah. Um, or did I, 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 sorry, I interrupted your train of thought there. No, no, no. Uh, it's harmful in that once it's up in the atmosphere and mixes around with other gases, it forms acid rain, which then drops. Corrosive. In, yeah. Well, it leaches metals, heavy metals out of, in, into, the, into the drinking water, into the water supply. We don't want that. And that's why I, I, I don't hear people talking seriously about pumping the, the air full of sulfur dioxide in order to block sunlight, to cool our warming planet. Maybe a little bit? It's something that's on the list of, okay, if, the, if we have a true emergency, it's, <laughs> it's possibly an option. People, I, people just, it, I, I'm talking about articles published in major newspapers around the world suggesting that this is something we should keep on our list of emergency measures because as happened after the impact that took out the dinosaurs – um, and that was, I mean, gigatons of sulfur from the Yucatan Peninsula. So it was sulfur that killed the dinosaurs? Immediately, there, in, in, in the immediate in the aftermath, wake. it was heat. Yeah. heat. And if you were locally close to it, you were wiped out. But yeah. for the years afterwards, it, it, vegetation died off. Yeah. There, there was nothing to eat. Wow. So sulfur dioxide, interesting stuff. As we get it out of the air, things might heat up a tiny bit. Let's stick with the weather. Um, this is another news, little news bit here. Artificial intelligence is better at predicting the weather than existing meteorological methods, according to a peer-reviewed study published in the journal Science this week. GraphCast, a machine learning model developed by Google DeepMind, was significantly more accurate than our world's most precise weather prediction system, which is run by the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, or ECMWF. GraphCast outperformed the ECMWF in almost all of the 1,400 metrics used in weather prediction, including temperature, pressure, wind speed and direction, and humidity in the atmosphere. The machine learning model draws on 40 years of data about how weather systems develop and move around the Earth. The input for its forecasts 
are simply the state of the atmosphere worldwide at the current time and six hours earlier. Based on that data, it produces a 10-day forecast within a minute on a single cloud computer. Conventional methods of forecasting use what's called numerical weather prediction, employing supercomputers to run mathematical equations based on atmospheric physics. In some graph casts, weather reports are not only way better, they are also approximately 1,000 times cheaper when it comes to energy consumption. Well, you're, you're not running the physics equations. You don't need to know that if in this three-dimensional cube of space, 10, you're, 10 you're, miles above the ground, it's this temperature, then the next cube is you're also... You're just taking the state of the atmosphere now compared to six hours earlier, and based on the way weather has happened over 40 years, these machine learning models know exactly what's going to happen up to 10 days in advance. Well, Hurricane yeah. Lee, they knew that it was going to hit nine days before it did, where it, when, it, when it ran into the, the coast. Uh, court... Compare that to the conventional model, I think it was six days. So that gave that place where the hurricane hit three days more to prepare. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. the effect. That's great. That's great. And somewhere there's a joke to be made about the fact that they're running this uh, via cloud computing. Har har. <laughs> well, that's it. SUDW.com. If you have anything to say, there were a bunch of topics covered today. Yeah. Uh, let us know whatever is on your mind. <laughs> And dairy cows, uh, this, this past summer where I'm from, the Midwestern United States, they're dropping dead. Reuters did a report on it. Nobody knows the exact number because there are millions and millions and millions of cows in the Midwest, dairy land. Uh, hundreds died in Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. Thousands died the year before in Kansas because of hot temperatures, rising temperatures. Cows cannot deal with the heat. So it's a logical consequence of climate change. Yeah, given how much milk we drink, something has to be done about these cows. And something apparently has to be done genetically. Uh, we're going to be speaking today to a, an agriculture scientist about how to do that. Uh, he's in Florida, in the, in the U.S. state of Florida. Science Unscripted. Okay. Yeah, my name is Pete Hansen. I've been interested in cows since I was a little boy, but I've been uh, doing research on cows for about 45 or 50 years now. And one of the major areas of interest is how cows adapt to high temperatures. Living here in Florida, that's a daily issue for us. And how are you helping these cows adapt to those extremely hot temperatures? You know, there's a lot of variation genetically in the world's cattle population. And some breeds of cattle are very resistant genetically to heat stress. So we're trying to find those genes and then transfer them in to breeds of cattle like the Holstein that evolved in Northern Europe that don't have genetic resistance to heat stress. The most progress we've made is in identifying a mutation in one gene 
And this mutation, the slick mutation, causes animals to have really short hair, which makes it easier for them to lose their body heat to the surrounding environment and better regulate their body temperature during heat stress when it's really hot outside. So this is a selective breeding process, right, and not um, a retroactive genetic modification like CRISPR-Cas9? The cattle that exist today, it's yeah, a genetic uh, breeding program, but there are efforts to use CRISPR-Cas9 to introduce these same kind of mutations into cattle. Is this unique with cows, this, this idea, the idea that, look, uh, climate change is very obviously happening and we just have to adapt to it somehow. So uh, we're doing this with cows. What uh, Are other animals having this tried out on them uh, or is this unique? You know, I think heat stress affects all mammals, so pigs, horses, cattle, and it affects all homeotherms, so birds. You know, All the animals that regulate their body temperature at a high level, just birds and mammals. The cow is probably more sensitive to heat stress than any of those other animals because it produces so much milk because we've selected cows for milk yield for hundreds of years. And that increased milk yield increases the cow's metabolic rate, increases her heat production. So a lactating dairy cow produces two to four times more heat than a animal that's not lactating. So it makes it very difficult for them to cope with with heat stress. How has the performance of the cows that have been bred in this way been? Are they, are they producing as much milk or are any have any problems arisen? Any anything um, deleterious or, or harmful or unhealthy for the cows? Yeah, we you know we have it's it's an interesting mutation. Um, if you look at just the what, the natural animals that have this mutation, there's actually six separate mutations in the same gene that have arisen in cattle. So for that to happen naturally, it had to be a desirable trait, you know, not a negative trait. Because if it was a negative trait, it never would have survived in the population. It would have been selected against naturally. So I, I think it's a desirable trait in hot climates. We have not seen any negative consequences of the mutation. You know, uh, so, I mean, it's something that we're focused on, but uh, we haven't seen any negative effects. When other researchers, other biologists out there uh, start thinking this way, start doing experiments in this way on other animals, are there concerns that they should have in mind or risks, especially with, let's say, retroactive genetic modification? If you're, if you're kind of using a pair of genetic scissors to cut out certain genes and change those animals, what, what could happen or what do researchers have to think about when they do stuff like this? Yeah, so I mean, what we've done with the uh, slick mutation in Holstein is just the same kind of natural selective breeding that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's nothing new. If you're talking about gene editing, just like you say, using a genetic scissors to snip out a little piece of DNA and 
put in a slightly different version. Um, certainly scientists w worry about what is the normal role of that gene and will this change in the gene change any of the functions that uh, that gene plays and uh, you know right now there's an intense regulatory environment so it's not easy to introduce those kind of animals into the food chain until it's certain that there's no negative effects on the animal or any changes in the composition of the food that would come from the animal. Pete, there are probably farmers all over the world that would be interested in giving this mutation to their cows. How, how could they find it if they're looking for it? Or yeah, what, what could they do to, to get it? Um, so there are um, bulls that have the slick mutation. There are bulls in the Holstein breed. I think in the next few years there will be, well, I guess there are right now. There's bulls in the Jersey breed in New Zealand that have this mutation. And so people are selling that semen. The big restriction, of course, is related to importation. Can semen from the United States be uh, exported into Germany or whatever country? So... Um, you know, there are commercial companies that sell semen, and they sell semen internationally. And some of those companies have cattle with this gene, and I'm sure they would like to, um, you know, expand their market and uh, sell these semen from these bulls, you know, in a variety of different places. And it's happening. How does it work in the, in the, in the cow or steer world? If I, if I want to if I want to have these kinds of cows, these slick cows, and I buy either the bull to breed them with or the, or the semen, is this, like, is this a luxury product right now? Would it be the equivalent of buying a supercar as opposed to a regular car? Is it really expensive or is it relatively easy to get? It's not expensive. It's, it's not, yeah, it's not a significant cost, really. There's no real premium on uh, semen from bulls with this gene. So it's something... You know, from a practical point of view, the very, very, very best bulls in terms of um, producing females that will produce a lot of milk, uh, they don't have that mutation. So if you use a slick bull, he's a good bull genetically in terms of milk yield or butter fat, but he's not the very, very best. So a farmer has to make a decision, do I want the very best bull? but he's not as heat resistant or am I willing to use a bull that's not as good and get the heat resistance. Over time, uh, this gene will get incorporated into more and more lines of cattle and the slick bulls will be just as good genetically for milk yield as uh, any bull. But, you know, it's been relatively recent that it's been introduced into commercial lines of cattle. So still the very, very best lines of cattle don't have the mutation. And it, just because I love going full science fiction once in a while, what, what about a, a slick human in the future for, a, for an ever-warming world? 
right? <laughs> Would that work? Could we, could we make ourselves slicker and be way more okay with the changing global temperatures? Can you move from agriculture science to, I don't know, bioscience and, and help them out, Pete? <laughs> you know, I don't understand much about human evolution, but uh, we've lost most of our body hair. So, uh, you know, compared to most mammals, uh, the insulative layer of hair that restricts flow of heat from our bodies is pretty minimal already. But, you know, you bring that up, this mutation is uh, in a gene that uh, controls hair length. And there are mutations in humans um, that, are in the same gene. So I don't know what the effect is on their, on their body hair, but uh, there's probably similar type of phenomenon going on in humans as in cattle or other species. Yeah, well, yeah. But I don't want to get involved in genetic engineering of humans. Of course, of course. No, you, you, say, you say humans have lost most of their body hair, but you haven't seen my colleague Gabriel Bord in the locker room. He's a... <laughs> He's a, um, a counter, counterfactual. I got hair leader. everywhere, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> Pete Hansen, speaking to us there from Florida. Yeah, and the, 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 the hair reference is mostly actually about your face. It's, you've, got a good, you've got a good winter beard going right now. I can grow it quick. I, this one took me like 25 minutes. It's going to have to, like, how do you grow it? Do you, do you, <laughs> and the hairs start coming out? No way. No this, this story is close to my heart, Connor. Like I said at the top of the show, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin, where probably cows died this past summer. And uh, I was with one of my daughters at, um, in, in Dodge County, the, the place where I live, not far from Beaver Dam, the city I live. And there is a, a fair every summer. And at that fair, dairy cows are judged. And if, if you want to listen to what that competition or judging yes, sounds I, like. Yes, I do. Here you go. Certainly an exceptional group of uh, spring calves here to start off our open show today. I'll go ahead with the young ladies heifer coming out in first. The heifer, that's a, a very high style kind of a heifer. You love that, that silkiness that she has. She's got that beautiful open sweepness to that rib structure. She's got that gorgeous depth and drop of forerib and rear rib to go with it. And I give her the advantage and width all the way. There is something beautiful about, um, it's your language, yeah. but the words are different. The cadence is different. It, it, it. Well, let, let me paint a picture about what, what that kind of looks like. So this is a barn. This is a, there are about 40 people inside a large open barn. And so he said that lady bringing her the, – the, the girls who bring the cows out are wearing white pants. They bring the cows out in front of the judges, and the, 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 the heifer in this case is judged based on its appearance, how it's looking. The reason why I'm talking about this is I went here to this competition with Lynn, and in the back, in the stalls where the cows were being – we're just kind of hanging out. Mm. They were being wiped down with washcloths, sprayed with with water to keep them cool. The heat index was 106 Fahrenheit. That that that's the reality for these cows. Just just, just roasting. Just survive. They 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 are hot, and they weren't even in the sun. Yeah. So the future Dodge County Fair, a hundred years from now, if we haven't managed to cool our planet is more hairless versions of those same cows? Heifers with the slick mutation, at least for now. Maybe, the, maybe Pete Hansen and his crew are going to come up with some more mutations to help these cows adapt and deal with this, but something is going to have to be done. Well, and then what are they going to judge their beauty on, if not for the, the fur coat? It'll be the skin? 
Well, you heard right there the the, the rib structure was one. Oh, thing. true, true. That is a part of the aesthetic beauty of a cow, I suppose. I wouldn't. I, I really don't know what what constitutes that. They make great noises. In any case, they, they make really. It, oh, yeah, no, you. Uh, but you make uh, uh, our last little dose of non complete and utter nonsense. Gabe can do a really good cow impression, and mm. we recorded it before. I think we were sitting in the studio before we talked to Pete. Mm-hmm. And he, we, we didn't have him on the line yet, and you started doing them into the mic, and I believe we have those clips here. No, we don't, but I can do one for you right oh, now. okay. I thought I we lost, had him. I lost the recording. Damn it. Okay. So let me just, let me do one right now. Okay. Give it to me. Mm-hmm. One more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> if you, too, can sound like a cow... Please email us that noise. We are su at dw.com. DW. Made for Minds.